الرحمن الرحيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته dear brothers and sisters both in the splendid audience before us and anyone watching at home on the recording it's my pleasure again to introduce this Islam 21C big discussion panel and my pleasure to likewise introduce our esteemed guests for this evening's discussion. As you know, the title of today's discussion is Is Radicalization Real? Many have suggested from outside the Muslim community that the biggest challenge that we face as a generation is so-called radicalization. So to discuss this panel in a bit more detail, we have our guests. On the far right of the stage we have Asim Qureshi, who is the research director of CAGE and author of the book Rules of the Game. To his right, we have Dr. Rizwan Sabir, who is a lecturer specializing in counter-terrorism at Liverpool John Moores University. I just want to start by asking the audience, just by a show of hands, how many of us believe that radicalization is a problem? Just by a show of hands. High up so I can see. I'd like to start the discussion going by asking Dr. Rizwan Sabir. He doesn't agree. What is extremism? Extremism is a word devised by the government to describe a group of people whom the government doesn't like, basically. If you pursue or follow uh, the roots of this word extremism when it's compared with the moderate term, it dates back to colonial India and when the British had uh, colonial rule over India. So extremism was a word used to describe those people who were essentially saying that the British Empire needs to go away and let the Indian people rule according to their own desires and their own structures. The moderates, on the other hand, were the people who were saying the British can stay, but please give us land reform. So that word extremist and moderate was used to basically describe a group of people calling for particular things. That word has now been essentially um, re constructed to describe um, extremists. The word has been reconstructed to describe a group of people who do not agree with what the British government is basically doing at home in regards to Muslims and uh, political issues, but also abroad those who challenge um, government, a British and American or Western uh, hegemonic power. By hegemonic power, I mean cultural, military and actual all domains of power. So that's the word extremist is used to describe. Extremist is also used to describe terrorists and people involved in political violence. Um, but now it's been extended to describe people who are non-violent, people who share ideas and viewpoints that are disliked by the government. Uh, it's all well and you know, uh, good to talk about history, talk about colonial times, but Asim Qureshi, 
Don't we live in unprecedented times? I mean, isn't the violence we see on our screens today, ISIS, Boko Haram, all these types of, you know, um, terrorist groups, isn't this something new? How can we, you know, look to history and, 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 and try and explain away our problems? Well, I think, um, sorry, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa rahmatullahi alhamdulillahi rabbil alayhi wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. I think to answer your question, you first have to understand the problem that you're dealing with. And this issue is one of violence, right? That's the issue that we have here. There are people who perpetrate acts of violence for whatever reason. Now, is that something new? Is that something different? And actually, what you have to do when you're assessing any problem is to actually first understand what the extent of that problem is. And the reality is, in terms of, should we say, the problem of violence here in the UK or even within Europe, the problem is minuscule compared to, say, for example, other forms of violence. So if you look at Europol's statistics, they look at every single act of, of political violence within the European mainland every single year. And nearly on, on, on a yearly basis, the number of incidents that are perpetrated by, by Muslims or those who largely uh, subscribe to some form of Muslim faith don't go above 4%. The last year was 1.37%. And so, you know, what are we talking about here when we say that there is a, a problem that we have to deal with or that this is a, some kind of anomaly? Because even if you actually compare it to the Irish Troubles, at the height of the Irish Troubles, we were talking about hundreds of people being killed across, uh, you know, a similar period of time uh, in, on the uh, English mainland. But we don't see that same thing happen. Nobody's fired mortar rockets from Vauxhall Bridge into MI5's uh, building, for example. But so can't, can't the number of incidents are very, very few. So when you talk about problem, we have to first understand, you know, empirically, is there a problem and is it anomalous? And I would argue that it actually, in relation to political violence, it's not an anomaly. But can't it be argued, for example, by the security services that had they not been doing so much monitoring and surveillance, then there would be indeed so many more um, terrorist attacks committed by what they call you know, Islamic extremists. I mean, just last year, in the last year alone, they said that they foiled seven plots, seven terror plots. What do you say to that? Well, we know very little about those terror plots um, to begin with. They're not giving us any information. And, and we've seen plenty of examples in the past where they call something a terror, terror plot, and yet there was no plot involved at all. And I think actually maybe Rizwan can probably speak to this better than I can, you know, from a number of different perspectives. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if there are actually any people that are not from London in this audience will know the, the famous Manchester United plot that never existed, right? So what the police found was uh, a poster in which Old Trafford uh, existed and a group uh, uh, a pair of tickets to a football match and then uh, the police leaked information to the press and this was turned out to, uh, to be a claimed plot in which Old Trafford was going to be blown up or the ricin plot when it turned out actually the Ministry of Defence experts had discovered that there was actually no ricin in Wood Green in, in North London um, but that had been sat upon and Colin Powell and the British government had gone to the United Nations Security Council and basically said that ricin has been detected in London. So when we talk about plots, one, we need to be extremely careful. Secondly, a lot of this plot claim 
is coming from the intelligence and security services. And anybody who's had any involvement or has any knowledge of the intelligence and security services will know that they have no public accountability in terms of directly, right? So all the accountability that does allegedly exist goes through the intelligence and security committee or it goes through politicians. So to verify when the government or security sources or services say that we have seven plots that are coming out is basically, it's not verifiable. You can't test that. So as a, as a researcher, as an academic, it becomes extremely difficult for me to swallow what the government is telling me based on pure faith, because that's what the government and the security services are relying on, okay? That's the first thing that you have to remember. The second thing when you say that intelligence, would the, would the security uh, or would the number of attacks been a lot higher, um, the, the, the key point to remember is that intelligence, cameras, uh, interception of communications or having this piece of technology or that piece of kit, these are dealing with the symptoms of political violence, not the causes. So you can have cameras absolutely everywhere, and France, which is a very well surveilled, or has an infrastructure of surveillance that's very advanced, did not stop the Paris attackers. 7-7, Mohammed Sadiq Khan came onto the radar of MI5 in 2003-04, when the crevice plotters were being investigated. But the, the security services could not stop it. So when we deal with methods, there is of course going to be individuals that are going to get through and, and, and be successful at committing a, an act of violence. The so what we ultimately have to do is deal with the issues and the cameras causes. and interceptions do not deal with the issues. So the causes, you're saying we have to look at the causes of terrorism. I mean, yeah. there's many people in here, probably all of us live in the UK. None of us wants to be, you know, attacked, la qadr Allah, harmed or, or, you know, killed even in, in some kind of terrorist attack. So we have to stop them before they happen. And the government is telling us that a way to stop them is to, you know, uh, look at the causes for terrorism, causes for violence, because you want to stop it, right? And the government is also telling us that the cause of terrorism is people becoming extreme, people becoming radicalized. You might have a normal, uh, you know, person, a normal child, but they grow up in a climate where people are filling their heads, as we're told, with extremist rhetoric and these extremist beliefs eventually turn towards violence, correct? Well, it's not really correct because there's no empirical evidence to suggest that there's a causation. You know, causally, if you believe a certain thing, that you will end up with violence. So if you look at, for example, David Cameron's uh, latest counter-extremism strategy, you know, he goes on ad nauseum about something that they term Islamist extremism. And they say, well, it's when you have a specific worldview, it's when you believe in the Sharia, it's when you believe that Allah is a sole legislator, uh, and so on and so forth. And then they go on to say, well, you know, if you, if you believe or have an affiliation or affinity to the works of Abu al-Ala Maududi, uh, to Hassan al-Banna, to Sayyid Qutb, then these are all, you know, kind of indicative of you being some kind of Islamist extremist. But the problem is, is that they use a very false logic in how they come to their conclusions. So one very good example of this is um, uh, the bookseller of Birmingham case, uh, the Ahmed Faraz trial, where the government argued in his case, because he sold copies of Sayyid Qutb's Milestones or some of uh, Abdullah Azam's works, which you know, are very kind of famous modern classic books, you know, that, you know, that these led to the radicalization 
of people and therefore he should be uh, convicted of dissemination of terrorism publications. This is what he was convicted of in the end. The logic was this, that there have been this many terrorism plots and in about 70% of those terrorism plots, those individuals had copies of these books on their bookshelf. And so there is a causal link between these books and people committing these acts of terrorism. What's wrong with that logic? Well, the, 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 it's a flawed logic because actually what you want to do to understand whether or not these books cause political violence is to take when Sayyid Qutb wrote his Fidhul al-Qur'an or Milestones or when Abu al-Mawduli wrote his works, look at every single person who has ever read or interacted with those books and then see how many people have gone on to commit acts of political violence. That's the real test. That's the real mathematical equation that we want to be thinking about and looking at. And when you look at that data set, then you start to understand actually it's very few. So few it becomes infinitesimal. And what does that tell us? Well, it's not about ideology. It's never been about ideology. If you look at almost every single act of political violence, in the words of the people who committed themselves, they say this is to do with policy, to do with foreign policy or domestic policy. And that is the elephant in the room that they don't want you to deal with because, you know, let's be honest, what happens when they deal with that? They say to themselves, well, actually, you know what? We got it wrong all these years. For the last 13 years, we prosecuted this war on terror and actually it's the, the root causes are foreign and domestic policy. That means they have to rethink the entirety of their national security apparatus. We're talking about thousands of jobs, entire institutions, policy that they've put into place, which, you know, in all honesty, it's going to be too difficult for them to, to move away from. I, don't know. I think it also ties in that the government wants to blame individuals for having the ability and the power to basically brainwash, which is the word that's constantly used, right? So what they do is they want deny that individuals who become involved in acts of political violence have agency and have independence of thought. And secondly, it ties into this historical image of Islam being the external, the other, the barbarian or the savage, right? And I don't want to keep on bringing up history, but it's very important because historically, in order for colonialism to succeed, and, and what we have happening today is a continuation of that colonialism, is that Islam has always been represented as an enemy or as a threat. And rather than accepting that it, the government or Western states, may have actually created the conditions by suppressing and constantly trying to control and dominate a group of people who are fighting and resisting um, Western hegemonic control, not just direct control, but cultural uh, and political and social and economic control, what the government is, is wanting to do is blame individuals, individual ideologues who they claim are called extremists. So let's absolve and whitewash our own history and our own role in creating this menace. And secondly, let's just blame somebody who's reading a book by Sayyid Qutb or Maududi or whoever it is as a way of um, basically, one, reinforcing what we already believe, that these people are barbarians and they are acting upon a religious doctrine, because that's what it ultimately comes down to. And secondly, they want to whitewash their own history. They're not willing to accept that actually what we, the Western world, have actually done may be coming to bite us um, back in, 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 in the body, and, and they're not willing to accept that. And until the government and Western states accept that it may have played a role, you will continuously have individuals that are wanting to resist Western hegemonic control and power. So just as though they're washing their hands of responsibility, what if someone would argue 
you guys, we all are doing the same, you know, because whatever the number of terrorist incidents committed by Muslims, 1%, 2%, uh, I forgot the statistic, how can you get away from the fact that these people, they shout Allahu Akbar when they're killing innocent people? They use yes, because ideology legitimizes political action. So mm -hmm. every action needs something to give it legitimacy. And what we have now is we have a self-fulfilling or, 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 or a hamster on a wheel, if you imagine that, right? So something is a political issue. For example, ISIS. ISIS is a clear-cut uh, exercise to establish a political state. Establishing a state is a political objective, but it's claimed to be governed and ruled and people act in the name of religion. So what's the cause of that? Is it a political goal, a state, or is it a religious doctrine that's causing it? So all these things are shrouded in politics. So when you say that we are ourselves are washing our hands of this issue, I would say I would completely disagree with that. Because we are not washing our hands. We are saying, let's call a spade a spade. This is a political issue. We need a political solution to it. We need to talk to these armed groups. And in fact, there's many people that uh, uh, say we need to encourage um, uh, conversation and discussion and negotiations with groups in order to find a political settlement. Because if you go back into history and you have a look at any organization that's used armed violence or armed action, you will quickly find out that the only way that you can find a settlement is to talk to them. You cannot fight your way to a, a peaceful settlement. Many, many politicians, though, they, they, they agree that most Muslims are peaceful, are you know, good law-abiding citizens. And they, they don't say all you know, Muslims are bad or Islam is the problem. They say a, a tiny minority have perverted Islam. And they say they have, because of their perverted ideology, which politicizes Islam, as you mentioned, you know, it's about politics, they put politics into Islam and that's the problem. So, you know, many people who just hold, you know, normal conservative Islamic views, let us go to our masjids, our madrasas, let us raise our children as Muslims. They don't have a problem with that, do they? You see, I think what we do is we end up um, infantilizing our own communities in many ways. So, for example, you know, we treat children or our young people as if they're complete idiots. Because, let's be honest, the thing that radicalizes people most, even though I dislike using that term, is watching the news. You know, watching what's going on in Palestine, what's going on in Iraq, in Chechnya, in, in Somalia, wherever it is in the world, okay? That is the thing. They look at that and they wonder to themselves, what the hell is going on here? And how do we bring about solutions to it? You see, this is the problem that, you know, actually at the end of it, it's just a very human thing. Trying to help them is a very normal thing. Now, we would say there is a way about doing that, which doesn't necessarily involve fighting. And that's our scholars to give advice to our children. But the problem is that there is a climate of fear that stops our scholarship from saying what they need to say. And this is the greatest threat, actually, that this entire securitized environment stops us from dealing with the real issues, stops us talking about Palestine. because. Because the mosque committee turns around and say, brother, this is too political. We can't talk about these things because the government is going to start scrutinizing us and it's going to start making our, our life difficult for us. So the very thing that you're supposed to be talking about, you're not talking about because you're scared. And so when the child goes to the mosque or the young man goes to the mosque and he wants to learn 
about what does my religion teach me about these conflicts? How do I understand the fiqh of jihad, which we've got 1400 years of jurisprudential books writing about and talking about? How do I understand this stuff? The one place that's not talking about it is the mosque. I mean, does that even make any sense? The one place you want to go to for advice, for pastoral care, is the one place that's failing you systematically. And so this is where we get left with. And you know why, yeah. you know why the mosques yeah. are afraid? Why? <clears throat> because it's not a minority that's being targeted by this policy, right? There is all, armed groups always work in this way. You always have a very small minority who engage in armed action or violence, but the armed group survives by a popular level of support. And if you trace this back in history, all insurgent or terrorist groups have, have this level of support. So when the government says that we are at war here with a tiny fraction of extremists, what they mean by that is that we are targeting the community through our surveillance infrastructure, our stop and search on the roadside and at airports, because they view the population to be an insurgent supporter, a support base that offers sometimes tacitly or unconsciously ideological support. So for example, when uh, groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or whoever it is may turn around and say, uh, we, we oppose Western imperialism, we oppose the Western uh, West invasion of Muslim countries and the occupation of Muslim lands, etc., etc. There are millions of Muslims across the world who also say the same things. So what this wider group becomes is somebody who becomes very important for the actual insurgent group to survive, to gain its ideological support, to gain its grievances, to gain legitimacy. Because though the methods may be wrong, what the armed group stands for is seen as legitimate. Right? That's the first thing that I would say. The second thing is what drives people to go to Syria. I think the hypocrisy of Western um, um, governance so uh, with one way we are talking about the despicableness of the violence perpetrated by particular individuals or particular groups in the Middle East, but then with the same breath we are inviting General uh, Sisi from Egypt, who has no respect for the rule of law, who subjects individuals to the death penalty without any due process, and, so, and we sell arms to Saudi Arabia and the examples of, of this government uh, uh, and military hypocrisy are endless. So we have this level of uh, hypocrisy that people are not stupid. You can't dupe everybody um, all the time. And people see that. The, the other reason is why people believe that violence is the only way forward, and I think this is a very important point, is that they are born in an extremely violent time. You switch on the news and it's all violent, symbolically violent. If they're not personally being attacked, structurally, by the levels of discrimination they face, by the levels of uh, difficulties they face, whether it's in employment or whether it's about going through their daily lives without being stopped and searched because they're black or minority ethnic, or whether it's being arrested and detained for being in possession of documents or being subjected to the channel intervention mentoring program. All this constitutes state coercion. That constitutes force. And when all they have been subjected to, whether it's symbolically through images or actual direct action, they become the subject of force and they therefore become violent themselves because that's all they know. So in a way, when we say, oh, terrorism is connected to Islam, actually, terrorism, I would argue, or armed action is a failure of our political and social system to accommodate the desire for political change within the Muslim diaspora and the community as a whole. So you and the government and the security services, they agree on certain points, therefore. You mentioned a small minority 
of Muslims, you know, carry out violence against civilians, for example. And the vast majority of Muslims, they don't participate in that violence, but they harbor some kind of um, No, I'm saying sympathy. the government views the issue like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, being against the Iraq war or being against the bombing of Syria, for example, is what I perceive that that's what the government perceives it as. I'm giving you the government line. In terms of um, violent groups surviving due to popular support, acceptance and support and sympathy, you disagree with that or you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, I do disagree with that because you may support certain, uh, you might challenge particular things that happen in the world because you don't like hypocrisy. But terrorist groups will draw on that and the government will claim that actually, and they, and, they, and they claim this because they don't understand the issue. And the reason they don't understand the issue is because they don't engage with the people that actually know what's happening on the ground. And if you have a look at certain high-profile individuals, including Mozambique, who comes to mind immediately, when individuals do have that level of scholarship and knowledge, political <coughs> knowledge about a particular issue, they imprison them. So rather than actually engaging with these groups and individuals who have leverage, the government imprisons them and actually reinforces its own ideas and viewpoints by consulting those who already agree with them. How can you ever have a solution if you only talk to people who you agree with? But they've pr- proposed a solution, right? They, they've introduced a, st- uh, a strategy to prevent the violence actually happening. It's called prevent strategy. Asim Quraysh, what's wrong with this? Isn't this going some way towards helping this problem? You see, what are they trying to prevent? They say that they're trying to prevent... Uh, first, it was initially, you have to look at it, where it came from. They said they were trying to prevent violence initially in 2005, when they first came up with the strategy. Uh, and then, as they moved on, they said, well, actually, no, we need to rethink this. We need to prevent the ideas that lead to this um, kind of worldview that ultimately could lead to violence. But it goes back to the earlier point that I made, which is there is no logical conclusion that you, could, that you could reach to say that the two are connected to one another, that the ideas are somehow connected to violence. There are plenty of people in this room who you know, will have had all sorts of readings and backgrounds that they came, came to in, in their religion. I would, we'd be hard pressed to find one person who thinks that this form of political violence is an acceptable route. But the government would have us believe that actually it's widespread. It could be in this entire room. That it's, you know, the speakers that this group listen to. It's this whole milieu that is the problem. And so this is a problem that we have, that prevent itself is empirically unsound. And when you have an entire strategy that's based on a false logic, then what happens, it ends up harming the community more than it helps it. And this is the problem that we're dealing with right now, that we have a whole generation of young people whose ideas, their thoughts, and their beliefs are being questioned, are being brought into question like they are suspects. This develops a suspect community mentality where they constantly feel like they are under siege. So when, for example, I have um, cases like a nine-year-old who's taken out of his classroom and asked, what's your opinion about the conflict in the Middle East? then what is that child going to think growing up? He's going to think that, you know, know, I was being questioned by my teacher, by the person who was supposed to have pastoral care over me about what my views are as a nine-year-old 
about something that's going on thousands of miles away just because I'm Muslim. That's the world that that child is growing up in. And there are hundreds of examples like that. If you uh, go to uh, an organization called Prevent Watch, it's just newly formed, they're doing a lot of work around this stuff. They're dealing with cases where people have been affected by Prevent and they're uh, logging their cases. And some of the, the cases that they're presenting are, are genuinely frightening. Like what? Like that, I just gave an example. Another example is, yeah, this one was uh, really quite, quite uh, stupid. There's a, a school in South London, and they thought it would be a clever idea to do a, uh, a week about conflict in the world, and one of the days was about ISIS. So one of the kids, Muslim kids in the school, volunteers to do um, a, a, a presentation about what the Islamic State, what the Khilafah used to look like, as opposed to what it, uh, ISIS is. So he gives this brilliant presentation. I've seen the presentation myself about um, you know, uh, what the contributions that Islam made to science, to art, to literature, and so on and so forth. Right? He had all these brilliant slides. You know, and the, you know, the, the team at Provencial showed me what, you know, all of this material. And then he says, well, this is what ISIS do, and like all the problems in relation to it. The teacher was so impressed with this presentation, she emailed the parents and said, wonderful, this was such a superb presentation and really clarified things. You know, for a 14-year-old to produce something that brilliant, it's remarkable. Except a third party told the head of year about the presentation. And the head of year, instead of speaking to the teacher, instead of speaking to the child, automatically rang up Prevent and reported to the child to um, the Prevent authorities. They then come in. And, and, and start proceedings with uh, the local council and social services, who then contact the parents and say, uh, social services, we're worried there's, a, there, uh, there's an issue here in relation to the way that you're raising your child and about you having, um, you know, kind of proselytizing ISIS uh, mentality in your household. This is how far it reached. So in the end, after a long back and forth with the council, they managed to, to stop this entire process and the council realized they made a mistake and they admitted that this whole thing was dealt with badly. But they still had already filed the issue with the police who now have a, a file on the boy with CrimInt. So there is a file that we now have to fight that's on a domestic extremism database for this boy who's going to grow up in the system. Dr. Rizwan, you're an academic. Yeah, you deal with numbers, you deal with statistics. The example you just heard, it's one, a few examples that we, you know, we hear often. I just read a statistic just today that in 2015 alone, there's been over 6,000 referrals to you know, uh, the authorities to prevent this, um, these so-called extremist ideas. I mean, are you saying they're all like that? It's difficult to tell because there's a lot of secrecy around, one, the PREVENT program, but secondly, the kind of people that have been involved. So unless individuals show some level of bravery and a willingness to register themselves, um, it's very difficult to trace, firstly. Uh, secondly, what happens is the number of referrals will, of course, increase the more you criminalise particular issues or ideas. So if the concept of, or the word... Um, um, the anglicised pronunciation, caliphate. It's constantly being disseminated on Sky News or on BBC or whatever, and young people are reflecting that level of public discourse or public discussion in classrooms or whatever. The problem is that that term has been 
uh, constructed as being suspect. So if anybody hears that word, then the onus is on them to report that. There is also now, because of the Prevent Program's legal placement into, into uh, the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015, it's now law to refer, you have to, it's a legal duty. And if you don't, you can be held in contempt of court. People are afraid, teachers are afraid, that if they fail, lecturers and teachers and so on and so forth, are afraid that if they fail to refer somebody, and that somebody goes on to become involved in something nefarious or problematic, then it's their skin that's potentially on the line. So what we have here is a two-way partnership between students and staff in which fear is being disseminated. Fear of not referring and reporting and therefore falling victim yourself to the judicial process, and fear amongst the students or the, or the constituents within a school or a hospital or a, or a university. What we also have is that this level of, apparent, this level of fear is actually going to perpetuate the issue of radicalization. And the reason is that the, the, the way you confront people's desire to become engaged in armed activity is to create a space in the current political system in which they can fulfill their desires and dreams of bringing about revolutionary change through non-violent methods. So the more you close down the space, the more that people will realize that actually the only way to fight for what we believe in is not through signing petitions, not lobbying our MPs, not organizing on a community level, but is actually to externally shock the system through violence. So when Asim says that this empirical flaw between ideas and actual violence, and that's what Prevent deals with, not only is it empirically flawed, not only is it non-scientific to say ideas lead to violence, but it's actually more dangerous, and it's actually going to lead to more insecurity, not less. Wow. So you're saying that ideas essentially don't cause violence? They do not cause violence. And anybody that turns around and says that ideas cause violence is simply being disingenuous. The evidence is there. There is no link between holding a particular idea and engaging in a, a, in a particular action. This is God of the gaps. Anybody who's an A-level religious philosophy will know the concept of God of the gaps. When you cannot explain something, you come up with a particular thesis to say, oh, this is what explains it, right? And radicalization, radicalization, in quotation marks, is a word created and constructed by the government to refer to a process that nobody understands. Why is it that I can read Fizal al-Quran or Malin fi al-Tariq, right? Sayyid Qutb. I can read these books and not become involved in armed action, but somebody else can read these books and become involved in armed action. What is that final factor that prompts an individual to remain non-violent and to become involved in violence? Nobody knows. And anybody that turns around and says that they've got some silver bullet, bullet cure for what leads to or answer that leads to violence is being disingenuous. Don't believe them. And that's what Prevent is based on. And when you base a claim on ideology leading to violence rather than political factors, it's inevitable that you will create a system in which people feel repressed, demonized, marginalized, and the only way that they can kind of outlet any anger and aggression they feel is through armed action or supporting armed action I mean, at home or abroad. Let me tell you the irony of this entire situation, which is we live in a world right now where the ideas of the French Revolution, of Enlightenment thinking, pretty much rule the dominant Western liberal discourse. You know, the way that we're being told we should live our lives, you know, according to this concept of liberalism uh, and enlightenment. So Rousseau, Voltaire, Locke, Montesquieu, these are the philosophers. It's in their world that we very much live right now. 
except after the French Revolution, all of the European monarchies came together. And you know what they were saying? They were saying, it's precisely the ideas of the Enlightenment, of the encyclopedists, or people like Rousseau and Voltaire, that leads these university lecturers to spread radical thinking amongst their students. So we must prevent the ideas of the French Revolution in order to stop this sedition and this extremism. You know, it's, it's so ironic that the very people that are perpetrating this stupid narrative, okay, this illogical narrative on us, are the ones who are affected by that same thought. You have an Austrian minister literally saying, we have to prevent the ideas of the French Revolution by cutting off, by burning the books of the philosophers and the encyclopedists. Because one man decided one day to stab an, uh, uh, an, uh, a German minister and then cut himself in the stomach and try and kill himself, and they became worried about this phenomenon of suicide terrorists. You know, this is, this, all of this stuff repeats itself. This same flawed logic, it repeats itself again and again and again. If you, Rizwan already mentioned the example of India. You know, once again, you know, they did something very similar, like Tahir al-Qadri not too long ago came up with a textbook about good citizenship for Muslims in the UK. They had a textbook in India called Citizen of India. Which was what? It was supposed to reduce the level of seditious and extremist behavior amongst those people who were calling for boycotts of the British government, who were trying to rally support against the British government's presence in India. And so we see these patterns again and again and again, and it's got nothing to do with ideology. It's got everything to do when repressive states centralize control and power to themselves, how they then control minority who they want to present as the other, as the suspect community. So, you guys, with all due respect, you're very well read, you're academics, you look at the data, you look at, you analyze statistics, you read Rousseau. Most people don't. I don't. I don't, I don't engage in, you know, reading about the French Revolution and so forth. Practically speaking, what are you going to tell 600 people about how they can personally deal with this issue. And we've got some tweets coming in at, at Islam21C, such as, the example with the young girl is shocking. The young girl who was um, taken out of her class and um, reported to prevent. How do you think Muslims, and Muslim parents in particular, can tackle this issue? Practically speaking, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed Sorry. to go up to the school and give tackle, them a copy of tackle which issue? the issue of children being targeted because of you know these 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 uh, these beliefs or them them being questioned about ISIS or, or foreign policy or whatever? Well, I think that the first thing to do is to make sure that you challenge this stuff. Don't be afraid of it. The only power that prevent has is the power that we as a community give it, because it's. It's supposed to be a program that's based on interaction with the community and acceptance by the community is, uh, as well. So if you start to challenge it, it actually loses its power. So question the logic. Don't just become too frightened to even do anything. Go to organizations like Prevent Watch. You know, you can even contact CAGE. There are other organizations as well. Contact them and say, look, you know, I'm having this problem. They've approached me, what can, what can I do? And it's about using the law, but also getting these schools, 
these doctors, these nurses, opticians, childminders, I mean, all of these people are obligated to, as part of the reporting duty. But getting them to then formally question uh, the decisions that they're making. And one thing is very, 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 very important. Do not have verbal conversations about any of this stuff. If you're going to communicate with a, a public body, with your school, with your doctor, with whoever it is, make sure you contact them by email or by letter and that you receive responses. If they try and contact you by phone with a response, say, sorry, but I, I'm not going to listen to this. I want you, my response in writing. This is crucial because if we don't have an evidence base for what they're saying, we can't challenge it. And we are in a, in a process right now where it's the evidence base that's winning us the discussion. Alhamdulillah, honestly, we are winning the discussion about prevent. The government is running scared because you've got hundreds of academics coming up publicly. Uh, Rizwan and I both earlier in the year signed a letter, a joint letter, by 300 academics and public figures, including people like Karen Armstrong, Tariq Ramadan, many other people, many figures you all know, criticizing prevent, saying it was having a chilling effect on the Muslim community. So there is a groundswell of opinion now that is coming together in order to, to criticize this strategy and, and expose it for what it is, which is both scientifically flawed and destructive for our communities. But Asim, it, it's fine for 300 academics to sign a letter. That's their job, you know, to, to hold the government to account and so forth. You mentioned doctors, uh, childminders, teachers. They're legally obliged now to engage with Prevent. How, how can you tell a room full of teachers, for example, that, you know, don't worry, we're, you know, we're against Prevent? They, they have statutory obligations. They're legally obliged. If a teacher comes to you now and says, what, what do you expect me to do personally as well, there a are, teacher? There are layers of action, right? So the first thing is that it is a statutory duty now. You are obliged to report on, say, for example, the guidance says if a child is looking depressed, then you should report that child because they could be susceptible to radicalization. So for us, the first thing is you have to use your common sense. And remember the science that you were taught over the pseudoscience that they want you to now kind of implement. So go always go back to your science. So your science teaches you if somebody's depressed, this is uh, either a physiological or a psychological issue. And go down the route of making sure that any referral your, or any treatment goes in that direction. You know, rather than assuming first and foremost that this is a protection issue, that there is a, a, an issue of radicalization here. But you know, on a higher level than that, Alhamdulillah, we're also in a situation where the trade unions, for example, the teaching unions, have taken a very strong stance against Prevent. They're coming out and saying, we're not going to implement this stuff. We refuse. Make sure you join your, your unions you know, in terms of uh, you know, pushing back against this. But it's the law. Won't they get in trouble? But, but, but the key to this, all this is, remember you have a duty. As teachers, you have a duty. And as doctors, you have a duty. Your duty is to what? Is to safeguard the care of those under your charge. If your patient or your student is too scared to come to you to talk about the issues that you, they have in their lives because they're worried they're going to report on you, you have failed in your duty. So put it back on the administration in the school or the healthcare trust to say that, sorry, but we can't implement this stuff because we're going to be failing in our duty to our client 
to our student, to our patient, to fulfill their needs as people who have a responsibility to those under our care. This is the key. Do your job. Do your job as you were taught to do it. Do your job as the science teaches you to do it, not as the pseudoscience. So challenge, keep on challenging at all levels. That is the key to pushing back against prevent. The moment we accept that prevent has a legitimate narrative, that they have something to say, that they have any kind of relevance to our community, we lose the battle. We know how to prevent uh, you know, our community from going down a line that we don't want them to do. We've been doing it for centuries. We, since the death of the Prophet we've had so many different groups rise and fall, groups that were involved in violence, in political violence. And we've seen groups like the Hashashiyun uh, arise in Central Asia and the kind of violence they were committing all over the world. So many examples in history. The, the history of Muslims is not one where violence is a new thing, where political violence is a new thing. It's happened, and you know what? For centuries we've been dealing with it. We've been dealing with it internally. How? By having an open discussion amongst our own people, by going through learning processes, by educating our youth in an open and honest way. Not in a contrived way where we have now, where the government gives a mosque money and the mosque puts on uh, you know, all of these uh, kind of condemnation events. You know, it says, yes, we all condemn ISIS. We've been condemning ISIS since before they even knew who ISIS was. You know, all the mosques, there are all the people from mosques here who have been condemning ISIS. Let me ask you one question. Were you condemning ISIS when there were only Arabs being killed or only after Westerners started being killed? You have to be honest with yourselves and ask this question because it's very important because it speaks to how we take seriously issues in our own communities. And I guarantee you the, most, the vast majority of mosques in the UK won't even name, be able to name me one Arab outside Mu'adh al-Kasasbe, the man who was burned by fire, the Jordanian pilot, outside of him won't be able to name me one Arab that was killed by ISIS. But they'll know the names of every single uh, Westerner. That's important. We should be talking about that because it's a problem. But let's be real about what we as a community know is a problem and what is presented as a problem in our lives. And that is the crucial thing here, that we know how to deal with our problems and yet sometimes we are told what the problem is and we end up responding to that even though we know in the back of our minds actually this really isn't that great an issue in our lives. One very quick point. Uh, power doesn't like resistance but resistance is ultimately what brings power into check. And I give you a very famous example, if anybody here from Birmingham will know this, Project Champion, the campaign or the police attempt to put cameras uh, across uh, areas of Birmingham that would have basically created a ghetto so nobody can come and leave without the police knowing who was coming and going. The only reason that those cameras came down was because the Muslim community in Birmingham, so outraged by what had happened, essentially put pressure on and the police withdrew their attempts to, 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 to leave the cameras in place. So the whole point of saying that is that community organisation is absolutely vital. Anybody who is being referred to the channel programme under Prevent, for example, one should speak to others in order to gain solidarity and support. I would advise that. Don't do this alone. You don't have to. Draw on people's social capital and their contacts and their experiences. 
And secondly, you have to be brave in order to challenge this. Come out in the public space and challenge it. It's only when people will challenge it through official avenues and through the public space that people will become aware of this and realize that they are not alone. And the only reason that why Prevent has essentially been marginalized completely in the public discourse is because enough people have been critiquing it now for a number of years about how this policy is problematic on many, 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 many fronts. So, so community resistance and community organization is absolutely vital. Officially complain. So if the school, for example, says to you that we are referring your child, then you have to take that up officially with the school. Now that means either contacting your best friend or your brother-in-law or a lawyer that you know in order to help you draft the letter and make sure that you actually send the letter and you follow everything through. And the second one that I would say is that you have to be brave. That you, you are not going to go to prison. Nobody is going to say anything to you if you fight. You're not doing anything wrong. And I can tell you now that the only way that God will help you um, um, fight this thing is if you show bravery and they can't do anything in the face of bravery. They, they, they can claim that they will deal with you and counter you, but I can assure you right now, the minute you are brave, they can do nothing and they will give up, as they are doing increasingly with the community resistance and organisation in regards to preventing. I know the audience is, I hope the audience is as riveted as I am with this conversation and it's my pleasure to inform you that we will be carrying on this very conversation after the break that is coming up for uh, Salatul Isha. And because this is such an important issue, we have a, a dedicated Q&A session after Isha with our esteemed panelists and a special guest, an extreme special guest. <laughs> I hope you'll all enjoy me for uh, enjoying join me for thanking our panelists so far and hasten back for the conclusion the long-awaited Q&A session for this panel and the next voice you'll hear is the voice of our host of the class Jazakumullah khairan wa sallallahu alaihi wa sallam wa barakatuh Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh again, dear brothers and sisters, and welcome back to this panel discussion uh, on Is Radicalization Real? And in particular, this is your chance to get involved in the discussion. I noticed many brothers having conversations about the panel outside, and many were coming up to me and saying, you know what, you should cover this, or I have an issue with this, or you know, I have a really burning question, or, and so on and so forth. And then when I said, that's a good point, you should raise it in the Q&A, they said, no, 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 I can't raise this, you know. This climate of fear, dear brothers and sisters, is something we have to get over. We, many of us, we feel that if we just put our heads down and just get on with things, we'll be left alone. And that might be the case, but it might make things worse for our children and generations to come. So I ask sincerely, dear brothers and sisters, if you do have a, a question or a comment, and please keep them brief and to the point, please do raise your hand and we will try our best, inshallah, to have them uh, heard and responded to, inshallah. So without further ado, please let's see a show of hands. Any questions and brief comments and personal experiences and so forth, please let us see your questions. So let's start with taking three questions at a time or three comments slash questions at a time. We have one here in the front row. 
uh, one brother next to him and and uh, one person over there so yes so just let's stay with the front row plus first Assalamu alaikum to the panel for explaining a very difficult and sometimes often uh, often complex discussion in in uh, in very simple under, uh, simple language that we can understand around the issues of of prevent and, and radicalization now what I want to to ask you to speak about is very two very brief th things one is around the fight back because the fight back against prevent has already started we saw a statement in Newham we saw a real a really good statement from the Wolf Forest Council of mosques and other uh, parts of the country where they are talking about and planning to boycott prevent as Wolf Forest Council of mosques did now, can you so to speak about that as one issue? And then the second issue, very briefly, is when I speak to parents and when I speak to uh, Muslim schools, I get the sense that there is a real fear abounding uh, within our community. And one of the manifestations of that is we're finding that many parents are saying that we need to start coaching our children and really explain to them uh, the do's and don'ts of what to say in public. To such an extent that they are being very fearful of them saying very simple things, like a parent was saying that she uh, said to her, her child um, when he was taking off on the plane to do the dua, and then he started to do the dua, and he, she said, do it in a low voice. And she realized that she was being infected by this fear. So just to, can you just say a few words about that, 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 man, that mentality and how we must check ourselves to ensure that we don't start to coach our children to hide their Islam. Sheikh the, the third question, you said you will take three people. Oh yes, sorry. I think that was quite a long one, so can we address that yeah, one? And it had a few points because it's quite... Uh, yeah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Dave, can I suggest something that maybe the sisters feel May Allah reward them, feel embarrassed to ask loudly, and this is the, a good behavior of a sister, mashallah. May Allah reward them. So they might uh, write the questions uh, in yes. paper. People are tweeting at Islam21C, okay. inshallah, or um, if they would like, they yeah. can get uh, a friend to tweet for them. Yeah, so just because we did not see comments from them. May Allah reward them. Okay. Um, in fact, I was, uh, when I was listening to the previous uh, episode or discussion, I wanted to highlight your point, the point that uh, Brother Yusuf mentioned, which is fear. Brothers and sisters, fear is the worst enemy of the human being. If you get into any competition, psychologists say, and educationalists, etc., etc., they say, if you get into any competition and you feel that you will lose that competition, you will lose it actually. If you got, get into that competition with confidence that you will win, most likely you will win. So actually, you are the one who defeat yourself or give victory to yourself. As simple as this. We are facing the challenges in the UK, yes. In Europe, yes. In the whole world, yes. But, as Allah Jalla says, this is the nature of this life. One time you are victorious, one time you will be defeated, and this is a challenge. And in the other ayah, Allah Jalla says, 
Have you ever thought that you will get into Jannah? And Allah Jalla did not see those who are remain patient or remain patient on their haq and on Islam. So please, please, my dear brothers and sisters, there is not there, there, there is it's true some challenges, but don't be afraid. This is the practical message, and this is the first step. Don't be afraid. Because if you become afraid, wallahi, we will lose any, any, any challenge. And let me just say something, yani, a practical thing. You know, in France, in France, they banned hijab, they banned the niqab, then they banned hijab. Why? Because they have seen that the Muslims there, they gave up the niqab. So the Muslims themselves lowered the bar. When they saw that Muslims lowered the bar, they said, okay, let us lower it more. And then they banned hijab, and Muslims did not make a big fuss out of it. But if they come to us, and why are they yani, reluctant to do this in Britain? Because alhamdulillah, so many sisters are wearing niqab. So before they talk about hijab, they say, well, well wait a minute, we need to talk about niqab first. Let us attack niqab first. Once we ban niqab, then we can move to the next step. And this is what is happening. So the key message is we should not be afraid at all. And if you look at the Quran and Sunnah, you will notice that Subhanallah, the Prophet وسلم, always used to send, used to send this message all the time to the Sahaba. Don't be afraid. Just stand up. In fact, he never look at this. The Prophet وسلم, never sympathized with the Sahaba when they come to him and they tell him that look we are tortured we are miskin etc never accepted this the prophet وسلم, his message was no 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 stand up your face should be high you should be up because you are believing in allah Jalla and those calamities they are just uh, minor things that happen to any any ummah yeah um, just to get the, the discussion flowing, can we have uh, the other two questions from the front row, please? And uh, may I ask, please keep the comments and questions brief and likewise from answers from the panel so we can get as many as possible. Asalaamu Alaikum. Um, that was a very intellectually stimulating discussion. Thank you for the advice. Um, I have a practical question. Uh, being a doctor, um, I work in the NHS and I know that things, medicine is practiced in a very defensive manner. Even consultants end up doing irrelevant investigations just to cover their back. Um, if I ever work in A&E, if I see a child, I am uh, very defensive myself in referring them to uh, the social services if I'm not sure about a burnt hand. With this new aspect of reporting uh, things related to prevent, um, I think practically speaking, there is going to be a lot of over-reporting because people are going to be defensive. Um, so what strategies can we adopt to filter these so that they don't sort of go, because from experience I can tell you that there is going to be a lot of paperwork generated and I think we need to come up with a strategy so that we can filter these at a lower level. Thank you. And the, the second question from the brother. Can we have the mic turn up, please? Conspiracy. Um, uh, clearly, we can see the government agenda and 
over the past few years that there's been this tabooing of certain elements of Islamic sort of, uh, you know, sections. So, for example, uh, you know, those who call for the Khilafah, those who call for Sharia, those who call for X, Y, and Z things, these people have been labeled as extremists. Not just by the mainstream media, uh, the pinnacle of which is B the BBC and so on, but also amongst the Muslims is slowly, they've been themselves brainwashed into believing this notion that those who call for Sharia, those who call for Khilafah and so on, these people are somehow radicals, these people are somehow extreme. So what I put to the panel is, first of all, as individual uh, representatives of organizations, how can you, uh, how are you addressing this issue? Uh, because this is almost like a chipping away of our religion, bit by bit, until we have nothing. Um, so this is the first thing. Second thing is, what can we as individuals do to alter this notion, um, inshallah? Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. Asim, and please, concise as possible. Yeah, actually, I'm going to connect your question with the one before it from Yusuf, uh, which is, this notion of, okay, how do we practically kind of push back against some of this stuff? Look, we, we are fearful, we are scared, we have to recognize that. Don't tell me there isn't anybody, you know, in this crowd who hasn't been on the plane and Salah time comes and when you're wondering to yourself, where do I play, uh, pray? There's no prayer room at your gate and the Salah time comes in, you know, you're wondering to yourself, should I pray in front of all of these non-Muslims who are, who are about to get on the plane with me because of what? The fear around who Muslims are and so on and so forth. These are natural parts of, of our behavior, but they shouldn't... Is they it? Sh Sorry? Is it? For, some, for a lot of people, Sheikh. You have to understand that, the way people think. For some. For some, some people. Yeah, for some otherwise, people. I enjoy oh, doing it. Yeah. We have to recognize that, though, Sheikh. I know, mashallah, you're no, very, no, no, very, very relying on it. Persuade anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. But we have, to, we have to accept what the reality is first. But then what we have to say is that, actually, this is a fear that's inside our mind. Okay, you know, William Blake talked about the mind forge manacles, you know, the manacles that we put on our own minds, and this is exactly where this stuff comes from. Mm. But in terms of the practical advice, this is where we get over the fear, by challenging this stuff. The Waltham Council of Mosques have just produced a brilliant statement, you know, challenging to a group of imams, you know, it's unheard of, that they would come up against counter-terrorism policy. The MCB has been pushing back. A number of different organizations have been pushing back against some of this policy now. And what I would suggest is actually from a practical perspective, each profession has to band together with their own profession to challenge the people who are in charge and who are in power to say, give us an evidence base for this. So in your case, with doctors, get a group of doctors together, go to the GMC, go to your overarching institutions and say, okay, now you prove to us what the evidence base is that this prevent stuff actually works and we'll implement it, but we're not going to harm our patients and you know, allow for mistrust with our patients you know, without that evidence base. And the reality is that they don't have that evidence base at all. So this is, this is really crucial, which finally goes to your question about what do you keep on giving away, right? Jahidim spoke about niqab, and one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of history is because you learn so much. Exactly. During the Spanish Inquisition, I'll finish with this point, um, we're talking about the late uh, 16th century, early 17th century. Ferdinand and Isabella were writing letters to each other, saying, the Almalfa 
is a barrier to integration for the Moriscos, the, the Muslims of, of Spain, those who had been forcefully converted to Christianity. You know what the Al-Malfa was? The Niqab. They said the Al-Malfa is a barrier to integration, that they're not, these Muslims aren't integrating into Christian society enough. You look at all the language that they're using, it's verbatim the language that's being used today. And what happened over there? They took their religion from them bit by bit by bit because they said that ultimately, even though they changed their religion, mm. their cultural dress was still too much like the Eastern dress they used to wear. And so you have to complete the process of assimilation for that uh, cultural change to take place. So this so history this notion repeating that, that you know, history does repeat itself again mm. and again. Zak Lecher, um, any more questions? Can we take another round? Yes, uh, brother in the third row, please. And again, I'd like to remind the panelists and the uh, audience members to keep it as concise as possible to get as many people as my question is, in essence, in relation to the government counter-extremism counter strategy, uh, which is just a recent paper that's been out in October 2015. Now, they define extremism, which is very woolly. Um, extremism is the vocal or active opposition to our fundamental values, including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. We also regard calls for the death of members of our armed forces as extremist. My concern is, this sounds like it's an overarching strategy, and this is considered as a valid definition. What's the Muslim response to that definition? Um, and I'd just like to read out a question from the sister side. MI5 are trying to recruit spies or compel people to expose other Muslims. I understand that this is haram, but how would you explain this to someone who is relatively closed-minded or narrow-minded? I would like to. I would like you to explain this in the most simple language. And a, a third question to run this uh, round off. There are new laws being introduced to regulate madrasas under Ofsted. How can coordinators and managers best prepare for this? I'll take the MI5 one. No, no, no. Okay. There's one first. Um, in terms of the Muslim response to British values. Um, <clears throat> there isn't a Muslim response, a non-Muslim response. In theory, we all believe in the rule of law. We all believe in equality. We all believe in um, being judged according to a process and not being arbitrarily detained and so on and so forth. I would say that these values are not British values, which the government is claiming. They're as, as French or as um, a Muslim as you, as you so desire. The concept of justice and due process also goes to the heart of Sharia, regardless of what Douglas Murray or uh, the neoconservative movement or, mm -hmm. or the right-wing press will tell you. So the first thing is I wouldn't draw a distinction between British values and so-called Islamic values. So decency, due process, and these kind of things are as Muslim as they are so-called British. The second thing I would do <coughs> is you have to recognize that Muslims are not willing to buy into this British values narrative as I said earlier in, 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 the, in the panel, was that with one step we talk about the rule of law and we talk about all these kind of uh, wonderful ideas, but then with the very same breath we undermine them. So we say let's follow the rule of law and let's have equality, mm. but we imprison those very people who need protection uh, from the state with accordance of law by sending them to Guantanamo Bay or interning them in Belmarsh mm. or subjecting them to control orders and so on and so forth. So when the government say we have British values and Muslims should comply with them, 
Muslims shouldn't necessarily be at odds with British values, and they aren't at odds with British values. What they don't like to comply with is the hypocrisy of the government preaching to a community um, when it itself doesn't comply with those very values. Yeah, I'll deal with the MI5 question. Um, for me, the, uh, the issue, I mean, Sheikh Haitham can clarify the Islamic position about uh, the justice uh, and what that means, but, you know, from... Spying. Yeah, spying, sorry. But from, from a political uh, perspective or more of a community perspective, there is an issue in the sense that when you have the prevalence of spying in the community, then trust is hindered. And what happens is that people start to introvert when they feel like this process of spying is taking place. Those, those opinions that we need to engage with, that our scholars need to, to you know, uh, debate with and interact with, they go underground. And you can't then challenge when people are thinking about things in, in a way that is wrong or ill-informed. And that is the, the result of a culture of spying. You know, when people feel like we don't have the space to, uh, to speak because somebody's informing us, somebody's going to send this information back which is going to criminalize us in some way. And you know, actually, we did a press conference not too long ago, uh, a few years ago actually, now that I think about it, uh, with a Somali community. And the Somali community was saying, look, if you want to put an advert in a newspaper saying that, please, you know, we're, we're looking for people to work for us at MI5, that's completely different than knocking on our, our door. This was a real life example. Pretending you're the postman, rushing in and saying, um, we're from MI5, you know, we think you're one of the worst extremists in the UK, and if you don't come and work for us, we're going to make your life extremely difficult for you. Mm. Those are two very, very different things. And the problem is, is this, you know, the security agencies have a habit of using coercion by using people's difficult immigration status, or you know problems that they're having with their employers or immigration to um, to impact upon their lives and to use that against them to turn them into spies, which of course causes further resentment and disenfranchisement within our communities. Just to add another question that came in via um, uh, Twitter, uh, Sheikh Haytham, it, it's it's a fact that people like ISIS, people who are trying to recruit you know, young, uh, impressionable Muslims that have a particular mindset or grievances and so forth, they are um, preying uh, on our youngsters. And we, we, we don't want to give the impression that it's just, you know, some, some academic discussion, but our children at home, how do we protect them from being groomed, from being, you know, lured into this particular um, type of uh, organization or yeah. Uh, and so forth. Yeah. I think uh, this is a very uh, important question. This is a very practical question. We need to look at it from two angles. The angle of the government and what should have done in order to maybe stop this grooming or recruiting people uh, by ISIS. But the other angle, which is our responsibility as individuals, as parents, as imams, etc., well, there are a number of things that, that need to be watched. First of all, um, by the way, this, this, uh, this radicalization or extremism, we admit that there are some Muslims who are doing the wrong things. And there are some Muslims who join ISIS, they go to Syria. We have to acknowledge that, because if we do not acknowledge that, then, then it is, yani, we are going against the, some facts. Uh, so why? We need to think of those brothers who join ISIS. 
Why do they join ISIS? In order to understand how we can save our God, our children. You can see, my dear brothers and sisters, that most of those young children are the product of number of factors. And as they say in sociology, that you cannot pinpoint one reason that is behind a phenomena. There are a number of reasons behind each social phenomena. For example, this radicalization or extremism uh, or terrorism, it is a social phenomenon. There are a number of factors. The culture itself, the gang culture that we spoke about it yesterday, music, yeah, music, the type of music which is linked to gang culture, lack of Islamic education, mm. lack of role models. For example, lack of Islamic education. Until now, there is no proof. Even uh, I attended recently a discussion uh, over the, the, the uh, radio, uh, the Tunisian radio, BBC uh, Arabic, yeah? And it was uh, discussing uh, radicalization in Tunis. And uh, one of the brothers said that there is no empirical evidence that those who uh, finished proper Islamic study, they turn to be extremists or joining ISIS. So we need to expel that idea by uh, and, and uh, in order to safeguard our children, we need to provide them with the proper Islamic education. And that's why the government should, in fact, support that. And instead of saying, we need to ban these madrasas, we need to stop this and that and this and that. Okay? Uh, also, my dear brothers and sisters, if the person was not practicing and he was extreme in, in uh, his liberalism, once he starts practicing, he will use the same mentality that he used before, which is extreme views to what? To, 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 to another direction, and he will be extreme in the other direction. Also, many people feel the guilt. Many young children, when they commit certain ma'asi, yeah, uh, they feel the guilt, and they want to an easy road to Jannah. And they will be groomed by the ISIS people. Listen, it is just a bullet, and then after the bullet, you will get 73 hurul in, yes, being around you, yes, uh, in Jannah, and that's it. And the young boy, 19, 18, 20, something like this, he will be dreaming about this, and he will feel the guilt, and he wants to get rid of it. So you need to know this in order to be able to save your children. Also, if I may say, with regards to teenagers, don't, out of fear, sometimes when the teenagers, they might come to you, and they might say, well, you know, these kuffar, yeah, uh, their, their, their wealth is halal. They might hear this, by the way, they, I'm sure the teenagers have heard this discussion or they came across this discussion. Their wealth is halal, don't worry about them. They are killing our brothers and sisters and raping our children, uh, our daughters and blah, 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 yeah? Okay, look what they have been doing in Syria, look what they have been doing here and there. Don't suppress that discussion. Don't tell him, shh. You know that this discussion will lead you to many problems because he will keep it internally and he will keep it among his friends. Yeah? You need to entertain that discussion in a very wise way. Okay? This is very important. Also, also always give your children some challenges in their life. Let them aspire for something big. Believe me, many of the younger brothers who go there, they don't have a vision in their life. They don't have something big to aspire. They don't know that they can contribute 
to 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 their jannah to their akhirah yes in doing something useful other than going for as they call for jihad and then you will be killed and you will be shaheed and then you will get the 70 plus hur al ain what yeah? about the online uh, aspect of it how do yeah, parents the, deal with, uh, it? with regards to the online aspect see uh, we have to uh, whether for isis grooming or even for sexual exploitation which we will be speaking about tomorrow if we need to be careful and we need to monitor our children and how they use their electronic devices number of things that we need to uh, do some some parents they have these certain parenting programs to to monitor the the uh, internet access devices some parents they leave the laptops or the computers in the main room main sitting room uh, some parents they check their children one o'clock at night or 12 30 at night or 12 o'clock at night are they really sleeping or are they chatting with someone yeah sometimes you need whether openly or secretly you need to have access to your children's computer or devices and to try to browse if you don't know how to do this ask someone who can do this in order to see what kind of websites they are accessing also you have to have a level of trust yes you have a, have to have a level of trust with your children your children should not see that you are a person who is going to report them yeah because we have seen that some parents have reported their children if your children do not have the confidence that you can discuss the issue with them or you can protect them but you are a person who will report them they will hide these things from you yeah Sheikh, how can you establish trust though with the child if, if they if you're spying on them someone may ask yeah this so is what i'm saying they need to make sure that uh yeah that see uh, yeah, you mean spying by knocking looking, on the Looking through the, their browser history and so forth. Yes, <clears throat> that, that's a good question. They need to understand that we are doing this as parents for their own benefit. But can I just interject? I think that, that's a very wise thing to say, but I think I, I'm not a parent, I'm not even married in fact, but, but what I do know is that if you want to challenge something, you need to base it on knowledge. So as a parent, my mum could scream all day to me saying, uh, beta don't do x y and z and i'm not going to listen to her if she bases it on emotion or whatever yeah so if you want to um inform your children or challenge them or allow an open platform in your house to air particular views i'm sorry to say this but parents have to do the hard thing what i do every day and that's to struggle to study and seek knowledge yeah you need to learn about all these particular issues so when your son or daughter however old they are do come home and profess a particular idea or opinion you can say ha but hang on a second have you considered this and just that one challenge by you as a parent hypothetically speaking um will set them uh, ablaze inside and they'll think hang on a second i haven't mm. actually considered that that's how you have a rational yeah, debate excellent. so by using spying of course, do a bit of spying, just don't let them know you're doing it, right? That's good parenting. We all, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that all good parents will do that, right? Yeah. Maybe Asim can tell me. Yeah. But, but I, I don't think, you know, monitoring and spying and all the rest of it is one thing. I think challenging is, is, a, is a thing that I would encourage it's as a non-parent. Yeah. Uh, challenging maybe, uh, it is not a confrontational statement. Uh, I would like to add uh, one more thing. Some parents, and uh, I, I had this experience, some parents, could not 
maybe challenging is, is the wrong word, could not discuss the issue with their children, they brought them to me. Yeah? Which is a good idea. I'm not saying bring them to me. Bring them to, to, to an imam or a scholar or an activist. Yes? Who can speak about these things honestly and who knows how to speak to children. In fact, my dear brothers and sisters, we know, and we were, I was discussing it with Sheikh Farid, yeah? <laughs> I don't want to embarrass my children, but you know, when the father speaks, the children are the last people to listen to the father, yeah? Especially, they would say, oh, come on, we heard this lecture a hundred times. In the morning, he's lecturing us. In the evening, he's lecturing us. In the evening, he's lecturing us. Yeah, this is the dynamic between the, 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 the relationship between the father and the son. So sometimes it might be wise to take your children or to encourage them to see other people. That's why, my dear brothers and sisters, the sisters as well, yeah? Because there are many sisters who are being groomed. And we have heard of so many sisters, 19, 20, 17, yeah, in, 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 uh, in the Netherlands. Yeah, some sisters, 17 years of age, and uh, the three girls who crossed the borders to, to Turkey. <coughs> How old are they? So sometimes the mother or the father can't address those, uh, can't address their children mm. or uh, those, uh, those challenging ideas that their children adopt. Please, we need as many youth programs, youth projects, youth mm -hmm. clubs, youth activities, youth activists, as many as possible, because that will serve as a safeguard for our children. Just uh, before we have the, uh, any, any further discussion, I just want to open it up just to one final round of last three questions. I've been informed that we have to wrap up ASAP. So if anyone has a question, please put your hand up high. Yes, the, 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 the brother uh, uh, with the beard. <laughs> The third row that I'm pointing at. And whilst he uh, asks a question, we've got one here from the uh, social media. Dr. Rizwan, what is the impact of the structural inequality and does it lead to young people being radicalized? Okay, so that's one from social media. And brother, your question? I've got one question, and we hear this all the time. They say we don't have a problem with moderate Muslims. Mm -hmm. got, and, uh, we've got problems with the extreme Muslims. Yeah. Could anyone please explain these, um, um, these two for me, please? Yeah. Sure. And final question with the gentleman in the front row. With the uh, white thobe. Yeah, by the time you decide, the, the session will come to an end. Uh, a question on how to deal with prevent on a slightly more local level. So we had an incident in the masjid where we do a small halaqa just for the children and uh, we had prevent contact one of the imams to come to the masjid to sit in on one of the uh, halaqat and uh, they haven't come yet, they're, they're due to come most likely in the new year. So would you advise us to invite them in to give them confidence that we're not talking about anything mm -hmm. untoward? Or would you advise us, advise us otherwise to, because you mentioned about not giving them any sort of uh, credibility, so rebuffing them because we don't want to acknowledge them as a body. So would you advise us to rebuff them and then what are the consequences of doing that? So if I can ask the panelists each to address um, those, 
those issues in as concise a way as possible, and then we'll have to wrap up, I'm afraid. So starting with uh, Okay, so the question on social media about social inequality and its contribution to radicalization is an excellent question, and I think you cannot look at the issue of why people become so disenchanted with our system and our reality in this country and other European <coughs> nations that they want to engage in armed action. When we talk about structural inequality, structural inequality is the inequality that articulates itself in an invisible way. It articulates itself in a way when you apply for a job with a Muslim name, you're not invited to a particular interview because of that Muslim name, but you can't pinpoint it. It's like institutional racism. Nobody calls you the N-word or the P-word, it just comes across in a way where you're discriminated against. So when we talk about does that level of structural discrimination or inequality lead to radicalization, absolutely. And it leads to radicalization, radicalization in this way, that when an individual feels like they are constantly under attack but can't pinpoint in what way they are under attack, they feel like that the current system, the current structure is not created in a way to address their aspirations and their desires. Mm. So when an individual does come uh, to uh, the floor and say to them, oh, mm. brother, have you considered this alternative system? Now, when we talk about Islam or political Islam as an alternative system, there's many, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a theologian, but I do know that there's a number of different um, schools uh, or disciplines dedicated to how we should establish a political Islamic system of governance and military and so on and so forth. But when one individual comes across and says, look at all these structural inequalities that exist, have you considered the alternative view to establish an alternative structure? How are you going to bring about that structure? The only way that the oppressor understands is through the gun and the bullet. Then that becomes an attractive feature. Second thing I want to mention off the cuff in response to uh, Dr. Haytham's answer about uh, parenting again, right? What he's basically referring to is an organic community-led program in order to deal with our own issues. Now, a lot of the time, people will turn around and say, you don't condemn ISIS, you don't condemn ISIS. Well, if you stopped attacking the community across the board on a daily basis, maybe people, including myself, would get up and say horrible things about ISIS. But the reality is, you're gonna turn on the news tomorrow morning, or you're gonna go onto Twitter or Facebook, and you're gonna see 10 stories that are negative about Muslims. Most of the time, the community is either reacting to negative imagery or, or symbolism in the media or the press, or, or just trying to deal with that daily kind of vitriol or hatred that exists. So what, what, what is being recommended here, that organic channel program, that is the answer to our own issues. We need community level responses to our own problems rather than having some white aristocrat or elite in Whitehall telling us what to do. Um, the, the, the final question, and I'll be very brief on this, was, was it about MI5? No, 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 it was, it was about prevent. Yeah. Okay, so we uh, um, invite them or? In, in. Uh, do not invite MI5 or the police in. Do not engage with MI5. If MI5 contact you or want to speak to you, mm -hmm. you tell a lawyer or you ask somebody, can you put me in touch with a lawyer? Look, this whole concept about that I've, that's constantly been coming up in this Q&A session is remember one thing. The oppressed have to consent to their oppression. Yes. No system of power can operate mm -hmm. without the consent of the dominated. 
If I want to control you, I have to get your consent to some extent. So if you invite MI5 in or the counterterrorism unit officers in, you are consenting to your own subjugation and your own domination. Does that include Do not prevent? consent to inviting them in, sorry? Does that include prevent? Because the question was about prevent. When it comes down to prevent officers, do not talk to prevent officers either. Uh, they, are, they are a part of the coercive arm of the state. They are there to try and persuade you that the policy is not bad, that the policy is not about information and surveillance. It is ultimately about surveillance. And it is about surveillance on this simple basis. If you do not know where the problem is or what the problem is, you can't target the policy. So you need information to tell you which mosque to target or which gym to target or which community center to target. That is surveillance. Surveillance is not James Bond or listening devices or your phone being monitored. Surveillance is a conversation that you have with a prevent officer. Mm -hmm. So remember that when you are engaging with agents of the state or the authorities. And final Rizwan said everything that I wanted to say. So. Literally, Sorry. so I'm going to just talk about some of these points in a theoretical way. But please, concisely, because we as have As concise, there's a brilliant essay by Gertrude Spivak called Can the Subaltern Speak? It's a bit of a heavy read, okay? But in it, she coins a term that she uses, invents, in fact, for the first time. This term is epistemic violence, okay? To try and put it as simply as possible, epistemic violence is when your oppressor takes um, uh, a piece of oppression that has been conducted against you or been perpetrated against you, but frames the language by which you are allowed to speak about that oppression. So you have your own language, your own oppression taken away from you, and it is framed in the terms that they permit you to frame it. So they'll say, yes, it's wrong that the war in Iraq happened, but that's got nothing to do with terrorism. It's got nothing to do with foreign policy and the rise of violence or whatever else. You can talk about the fact that the, the war in Iraq is wrong, but don't think to link it to the bad impacts of foreign policy. This is epistemic violence, and this mm -hmm. is what we're going through. Now, the moderate versus extremist debate that you raised is part of this process, right? Which is the fact that you can talk about religion, you can talk about yourself, you can talk about identity, but don't take it too far. Mm. Don't take it to an extent which actually raises real issues. So when you've got people like Rizwan Sabir coming on Channel 4 News debating with one of the most senior Tory MPs, Nadeem Zahawi, and Zahawi says it's exactly Muslim belief in things like um, the way they distribute their inheritance mm. that ultimately leads to them committing acts of terrorism on the streets of London, that's them owning the narrative about who we are and how we describe ourselves. This violence that is being perpetrated against us is a violence of our mind, okay? And we have to understand the way this violence is taking place because if we don't, then what we do is we fall into the rabbit hole every single time. Exactly. And so it's important that we understand the way that language is framed and how we are subjects of that language rather than owning the language. Which is why you will never, inshallah, hear me use the word Islamist. It's a majority. Don't do it. And finally, Sheikh Haysam. Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I'll just quote two ayat. First of all, Allah Jalla wa'ala says in the Quran, وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ they plot, yes, and we plot, and who is the best to plot 
is Allah Jalla wa'ala. This is one ayah, and the other ayah, Allah Jalla wa'ala says, وَإِن تَصْبِرُوا وَتَتَّقُوا لَا يَا شَيْخَ اللَّهِ يَهْدِيكُمْ Okay, yesterday I spoke about the importance of the Qur'an. وَإِن تَصْبِرُوا وَتَتَّقُوا لَا يَضُرُّكُمْ كَيْدُهُمْ شَيْئًا If you have patience, and if you have taqwa of Allah Jalla wa'ala, which means you remain firm on your religion, yes, whatever they plot, against you will not harm you at all. Allahu. Yeah? That's it. Zakallah khair. Zakallah khair, Sheikh. And Zakallah khair to our panel from, I hope, all of the audience. Um, thank you very much for your, in, uh, your questions and your comments. And apologies to anyone whose comments we could not get. As I mentioned in the last two panels, um, this is in fact the beginning of this discussion and we're going to continue this conversation on Islam21t.com so I please advise, I ask you all to uh, visit the website to check out the content there and uh, sign up to our mailing list. You can also uh, get in touch at Islam21t on Twitter and inquiries at Islam21t.com and the next voice you'll be hearing is our Sheikh Farid and I'd like to say on behalf of the audience and uh, uh, and myself, a big jazakumullah khaira to the panel, and may Allah subhanahu wa taala accept it from them. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.